Let's open God's Word together to the epistle of James, and would you find chapter 3 and verse 2. This is now the second time we've come to look at what is the most remarkable passage from James that addresses the use and the misuse of the tongue. We're talking about, as we've made reference now several times, to the three tests of pure religion that James introduces in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. James has been talking about, as he brings the first chapter to a conclusion, about those essential characteristics of the ones who possess a genuine, vibrant faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might remember uh, the the test of a bridled tongue, which we're talking about this Lord's Day. And then he'll talk about the test of a compassionate heart. That will be the subject next Lord's Day. And then the third test is the test of an unstained or pure life in opposition to the world. But the first test is the test on the uh, docket today, and James elaborates on the test of a bridal tongue in chapter 3. A controlled tongue, he will say, is the mark or one of the marks of those who have met the Lord. And so in just a second, we're going to read chapter 3. Uh, verse 2, to the end of the paragraph, and let the weight of God's Word just fall on us. And if there's ever been a time I have preached with an awareness of my own sin and broken this before God, it it is now. This is a very heavy word from the Lord. It is a very convicting word from the Lord. Uh, It is a look inside our hearts And the Lord is going to pull back the curtain and allow us to see things that are disturbing. But it is the Word of God, and it is good, and healing will be the result. But I just warn you that this is a very, very difficult thing even to read. We're reading about ourselves, our tongues, and we know that our tongues really represent what is happening in our own hearts. And so with great humility, let us come to the Lord and come to His Word and let his word do what it says it does, penetrate the core of our being to expose what we need and then give us the answer. Chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, We guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a force to set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one, no human being, can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. 
Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The perfect word of the Lord. And now now may the Lord bless his word to find a very warm reception in our hearts. In chapter 1, James says the mark, one of the marks of a vibrant faith in Christ, a real Christian, is he or she has a bridled tongue. But why is it so hard for us to control our tongues? Getting control of our little tongues The organ of speech is a terribly difficult thing. And James pulls no punches here. He is very emphatic. And he is going to demonstrate for us in words and in language that is almost frightening that there is a connection between the control of the tongue and mature Christianity. The first thing he says is that the control of the tongue is a universal struggle. For he says we all struggle in many ways. And he's talking about the fact that especially in regard to sins of the tongue, we we all struggle. It may be very true that there is not any point in the life of a believer that he or she struggles more with sin than in the realm of their speech. None of us are alone in this struggle, this constant struggle to control our tongues. And so there's a word here that humbles us but also a word here that assures us. Without exception, James says in verse 2, we all stumble, we all sin in many ways, and especially when it comes to the tongue. So there's no believer, no believer in Christ, how, how mature or not they may or may not be, that's irrelevant. There's no believer at all who does not sin with their tongue. We're all in the same boat together. We're all in the process of being sanctified by the Lord, becoming holy and mature and being conformed progressively day by day to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many, many sins beset us. Many sins and failures define our lives. We are not alone in our battles. We face this battle together as the body of Christ. So none of us are innocent and none of us are alone. This is a common battle for those who know the Lord. But you can also see in verse number two that James is clear in making the control of the tongue one of the distinctive marks of Christian maturity. And we might might think of mature Christians in many ways. You might think of them as those who know more Bible verses by memory or those who are constant and consistent in the attendance to the means of grace, to the Lord's day worship and the teaching and the sacraments. But here James is saying a mature Christian indeed does those things, but they are, they are known, their maturity is on display in a very prominent way by the fact that they have a controlled tongue. He is a perfect man. He is a mature man. James is saying that the tongue then holds a key place in mature, holy living. And if you get control of your tongue, and here's the clear implication, that if you get control of your tongue, it's like this master switch. And if you control that tongue, that one, that one gift, that one organ of speech the Lord gave you, then that's a key factor in control living in every area. Victory in this war could very well be victory in all wars. And so it is a mark 
of an ever-maturing believer. But then in verses 3 through 6, James is making a very, very graphic point that with the tongue, you get a lot of trouble in a small package. Lots of trouble in a small package. You can see the summary of this in verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, that is a member of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And then James begins to use some illustrations. Illustrations of the fact that the tongue, though small, is a powerful thing. It is a deadly thing. It is a dangerous thing. The first illustration he uses is that of a horse and a bit in verse 3. We, we put the bit in the mouth of this majestic animal, a large, powerful animal. In fact, so powerful that we, we use them to measure the relative strength of our automobiles. We talk about horsepower. A massive beast in many ways, a, a, a magnificent beast, but a beast. And James says this very large animal that can leap and run and can, can carry loads is controlled by a very simple, small device, the bit. And wherever that rider wants to go, he simply tugs on the reins and the bit does it work, does its work, and that great beast is at the mercy of that small instrument, and so it is with the tongue. The tongue is only a few square inches, and yet James says it takes over your whole life. It, it rules not only your body, it, it rules your soul. It's like a bit in the mouth of a great horse. And then very quickly, he uses a second illustration. The tongue is like a rudder. And the point is that the tongue has a power way, way far past its size. The rudder of a great ship. Maybe James was looking out across the Mediterranean one day and he saw a great uh, sailing vessel going by and he thought about how uh, apparently the vessel is at the mercy of the winds and the waves. He mentions that here. And yet all the pilot needs to do is go to the wheel and turn the wheel and the wheel turns that small device at the back of the ship called the rudder. And again, this great ship is controlled by a very small device, a rudder. And the pilot who has a will, who has plans, who has a route, that pilot controls that massive ship, even in swelling waves and howling winds. He controls it by the rudder, and so is the tongue. Its strength is far out of proportion to its size. It is very dangerous indeed. And then he uses the illustration of the fire, a fire or a spark. And this is a, a common one, and currently in, in the headlines, a very tragic one. He speaks here of the forest fire. Notice verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I even heard recently that one of the California wildfires could have well been started by someone pulling a trailer and a, a small chain is dangling off the end of that trailer, and as it scrapes the pavement, it creates sparks. 
And the wind carries one little spark off the pavement, floats it into the air, into the forest, and it becomes now a national crisis, a spark. Maybe James had in mind a camper who forgets to fully extinguish their campfire, and then in a few minutes, again, that little spark is lofted into the air by the wind, and it travels a distance and falls into a dry place, and soon enough, there is vast destruction. A forest is lost. The smallness of the spark, it's been said, and the greatness of the conflagration are used now in the eyes and mind of James to show us the catastrophic power of the tongue. He says in verse 6, the tongue is, is a fire. It is a fire. It has the power, in verse 6, to set on fire the entire course of your life. How often can your tongue, in many ways, change your destiny? One thing said, or one thing not said, and the entire course of your life has now been changed. How many wars started with one word or two words? It has incredible power to bring your world down to ashes. The tongue is a fire. It smells of smoke. It singes everything it touches. In the commentary, rather in his commentary on James, uh, Calvin makes a disturbing comment. But very honestly, he says, when other vices, when other vices are corrected by age or by the succession of time, the vices of the tongue spread and prevail over every part of life. How often do the young misuse their tongue and the unwise and inexperienced use their tongues evil for evil purposes? And then at the end of life, how often do we say things that we regret? It seems we never get control of the tongue at any stage of life. The tongue spawns corruption in the entire body. It sets in motion an evil course throughout one's entire life. And then there's that awful line that James utters in verse 6. The tongue is set on fire by hell. Now that's a very strong statement. And here's what he means. The power source of the tongue, the fuel supply for the tongue is hell, hell itself. Dr. Vaughn has written that our tongues are fed by the never-dying flames of hell. Our mouths are an actual power for evil. The word word that James uses for hell here is the word Gehenna that originally had reference to a valley, a valley outside the sacred city of Jerusalem where in times past sacrifices were made to the pagan deity Molech, many times even human sacrifices. And as James is writing this, that valley, Gehenna, was the garbage dump of the city of Jerusalem. And it was always burning, always smoking. And James perhaps is thinking about that, and he says the tongue, its fuel source, its supply of energy is is hell, the always burning, always smoldering place of evil. It is difficult to exaggerate what the tongue can do. 
And then in verses 7 and 8, James lays out something else to know about the tongue. If you're not quite depressed yet, there's more. Here he says, the tongue is untamable. Verse 8, James candidly says that no human being can tame the tongue. And as I thought about that this week, I thought about how, how offensive it is to hear that there's something you can't do. Well, especially in our age, especially in this city, we, we put men on the moon. We've built the space station. We're, we're going to go to Mars. We're cracking in this city the genetic code. We are curing incurable diseases in this city. We are working on projects that when we are successful will change life as we know it. And, and, and here the Bible is telling us there's something we cannot do. You can't do this. Oh, oh, this runs counter to the spirit of the age. This is going to offend you if you've bought into the humanistic philosophy that says we can do anything we set our minds to. Here is something you can't do. No committee can do it. No formula can do it. No one can do this. And if you happen to be one of those Christians who believe that nothing is impossible if you have enough faith, this also will offend you. Because here's something you can't do. You cannot tame your tongue. It is beyond domesticating. Look at the illustration James gives. He speaks of the fact that we, we can do a lot. We've tamed all the animals. And he mentions that here. He's referring to Genesis 1 when the Lord gave Adam the permission and the authority to have dominion over everything. And he, he began to name the animals. And by the mere act of naming the animals, he is, he is showing his sovereignty, with little s, sovereignty over those animals. And it's true that we've tamed and in some ways domesticated Every beast you can think of. And when I thought of this, I thought of the beast that's most fearsome to me, having lived uh, for a long time in Florida. I thought of the killer whale. A huge animal. A deadly animal. An animal that can be so hungry and powerful, it can see through the ice a seal sunbathing on the frozen waters and this whale can propel itself through the water with enough speed to penetrate that ice and blow through it and pop that seal in the, in the air and swallow him without even chewing. And yet you can go to SeaWorld and those whales are doing tricks for paying spectators. And we've tamed them. And we've tamed the elephants. You can go to the zoo. And that's the way it should be. The Lord has given us dominion over them. But then James says, but there's something you can't tame. While you can tame the whales and the elephants and the giraffes, you can't tame your own tongue. The tongue is beyond taming. The tongue is a wild animal that will not be subdued by all human powers, the tongue, is impossible to restrain. 
on this side of the fall, in the Garden of Eden, now we don't have control. Our hearts are out of control. And our mouths are out of control. In the Garden of Eden, we surrendered our obedience to another king and we lost our freedom, our moral freedom to love and to serve God. Our hearts became spiritually corrupted and our thoughts and the words they spawn betray our allegiance to another kingdom. Long before we engage in sinful actions, there are sinful desires and sinful thoughts and then sinful words and actions. You cannot change your own heart. And therefore, you can't change your tongue. You can't control it. The human tongue is now the vehicle through which our idolatry is expressed. We merely open our mouths and we expose the evil deep inside. Remember, James would say, if you want to know who your Lord is, listen to what you say. The tongue rules us. And you know that. And I know that. How many times this week? Let's just keep it simple. How many times this week did you blurt out something that should not have been said and that you've regretted? It's like a wild animal is, is bursting out of its cage and wrecking havoc anywhere. Sinful and destructive words just explode from our mouths before there's time to react. Even for Christians. Now James is not going to say the answer to that is not to say anything. I mean, silence isn't the answer to that. But he's warning us that there's a wild beast that we can't contain, we cannot control. Something else or someone else must bring down this creature and subdue it. Because he says in verse 8, this creature, this tongue, this fire that's fueled by hell is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. Again, Dr. Vaughn, it is an ungovernable instrument of wickedness, incapable of being restrained. RGV Tasker, humanly speaking, complete control of the tongue is an utter impossibility. It is an intractable evil. We need help. We need assistance. James would have us admit that this is a much bigger battle than we've ever imagined. The battle for that little piece of flesh called the tongue. And then there's another thing to consider before we turn the corner in verses 9 through 12. Look at the, the diabolical inconsistency of the tongue. There's a devilish contradiction associated with our tongues. The tongue, again, is notoriously inconsistent. There's a discrepancy here. There's a contradiction here. On the one hand, what we're doing today, we, we gather together and we sing and we speak God's praises. We, we use our tongues in the way they were designed. With it, he says in verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father. 
We say, praise the Lord, blessed be his name. We, we sing in worship. We say grace at the table. We use our voices to spread the gospel, and that's what we should be doing. But then there is an outrageous and monstrous inconsistency about our tongues. We suddenly turn on a dime, and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. A devilish, diabolical inconsistency. On one hand, we use the mouth to praise the Lord, and out of the other side of the mouth, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. That happens in the course of one day, one hour, and one conversation. We speak well of the Lord. And then without warning, we turn the destructive powers of our tongues upon those nearest and dearest to us. While singing our hymns and uttering our praises, we we think nothing then of turning and slandering and accusing and attacking and defaming, even cursing those who bear the image of God. As one commentator says, using, again, very strong language, we shamelessly vomit forth against other people, and then in sweet strains we offer praises to God. How quickly, another commentator says, we speak with sweet graciousness at a religious meeting, and then we muddy someone's reputation with malicious gossip. That is a tragic, awful inconsistency. And again, James uses common illustrations in verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Another illustration. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? And neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The obvious answer, the obvious implication of all those questions is, no, none of that can happen. And yet James says there's something grotesque. There's something grotesque about the way our tongues are used for opposing purposes, blessing God and cursing men. But look at something else. You may not have ever considered this. There's a truth here that you might have run past too fast. Have you ever really considered what happens when you speak sinfully about or to someone else? What happens when we use our words against other people? Well, you can see what James is helping us understand. To to curse another human being, whoever it is, whether they're a believer or not, whoever they are, they are made in the image of God. And and despite the fact that we are fallen, the image of God remains intact. It's, It's been distorted, it's been damaged, but the image is there. We are the image of God. And James says no matter who it is, Christian or non-Christian, family or non-family, neighbor or non-neighbor, whoever it is, that's a person made in the image of God. And when you talk about them in sinful ways, what are you doing? James would say, you're cursing God. Because the person you are leveling with your words is made in his image. You are cursing, you are damaging, you are hurting that which is precious to God. 
In other words, God takes it personally when we speak evil of each other. Because that person, that person may be a no good for nothing whatever. But that person is still bearing the image of God. And when we speak evil of them, God takes that personally. That's what he says here. How often we use our words against our spouses. And God is offended by that. How often children speak evil to their parents. And God is offended by that. How often we speak against a neighbor or a stranger. And God is offended by that. How often we criticize other people, we slander them, we gossip about them, we call them names. And when we do, we're cursing our Father who made those people in His image. It's been said that the one who truly worships and honors God will be very afraid to speak slanderously of men. There is a painful reality here, again expressed by a great Old Testament theologian. The critical words, the critical spirit, the unloving speech that often comes from our hearts indicates that the love of Jesus is a stranger to us. That's a heavy thing to hear, isn't it? The truth about the tongue. It is an awful picture. It is a scary picture. It is a frustrating picture. What are we to do? A tongue. Well, what we've learned so far is a couple of things. One, our speech really matters to God. Again, that's why James would say the, the, the controlled or bridled tongue is one of the tests of real Christianity because our mouths, our words are a gift from God and they are a great power given to us from God. The power to bless or to curse. Our tongues given as a gift with great power to bless and to serve and to bring glory to God and to spread the gospel and to bear the fruit of righteousness or... A great potential for evil. Our speech matters. And then James would help us realize that, that our mouths, what we say, is where Christ's lordship is most gloriously put on display. The greatest evidence of our fallenness, as we saw last Lord's Day, is our tongue. If you want to know whether or not we need Jesus, listen to what we say. Listen to the way humans talk to each other. Read the papers. Watch the television broadcast. Look at the way we speak, and you see humanity in rebellion against God. And if that's true, then the other side is true. When the Lord saves us, then it is in the arena of speech that the lordship of Christ is most gloriously displayed. Christians have a different way of talking And that's why this is a test. 
But the question that confronts us, having received from the Lord such a heavy burden, the burden of his word, the question is, how can I ever bridle my tongue? I mean, I'm told here that I can't do it. You're told here you can't, you can't do it. So what do we do? Well, there's a hint in verse 9. You notice how often James speaks of our Father. Our Father. Again, he's drawing from the Old Testament where the Lord spoke of himself as Israel's father, the father of the redeemed. And then Jesus comes and he amplifies that great theme. He talks about our father. He's come to do the father's will. and He's come to, to represent the father to us. He's come to teach us to pray our father. And that theme of fatherhood is very prominent now in the mind of the brother of Jesus and he, he's talking about our Lord and Father and the suggestion here by James is what we need what we need is to be more like our Father how has our Father used his voice Well, he brought the creation into existence by his voice. He used his speech to, to create life out of nothing. And our Father used his speech, the, the very mouth of God, the word of God, as James says in chapter 1, verse 18, he's used his word to bring us to life in Christ, to create life. And he uses his mouth to bless us, to direct us, and James says we need to be more like our Father. So there is a, a point at which we need to say, I need to stand against the world and the way the world speaks, and I need to be more like my daddy, my father. Because he provides the, the example of how our words and our mouths should be employed for good and for bringing him glory we need to see that and then we need to see something else we need to realize that that this is the control of the tongue a chief christian virtue now we, we talk about virtues and we talk about values and let's not confuse them christians speak not of values but of virtues. Values are, are ever fluctuating. One community can value this, another community can value that, one people group can value this and another that, but virtues are transcendent. And the control of the tongue is a virtue. It's just as big as moral purity or telling the truth or not stealing or not murdering it's just as big it's just as important it is a wonderful primary virtue of Christ that his speech was never out of control 
It is a virtue to have a control tongue. It is not a weakness. It is a sign of Christ's lordship. Think about, think about what the Christian is called to do. Think about what the sinner is called to do to come into the community of faith. They are to confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Because it's at the mouth where the action is. What we say, is it under the reign of Christ? Is it controlled by the Spirit? That's where virtue is. And then we need to repent. And our repentance begins by saying, Lord, my tongue is a beast that I cannot control. I am not yet fully sanctified. And my tongue wants to serve the kingdom of hell. And I repent. And I repent of all the unnecessary and the harsh and the selfish and the hurtful and the profane words I've spoken. I confess, Lord, how I have used my tongue to attack those others who are made in your image. And I ask for mercy. And that, my brothers and sisters, will probably be a daily thing you do. Repenting. Repenting of our sins of the tongue. Requesting then, finally, the power of the Spirit of God to control our tongues. Without the slightest bit of uncharity in my heart. I want to give you an example. There are many well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that the greatest evidence of the Spirit's power is in some physical manifestation or in some spectacular happening, maybe rivaling that of even Pentecost. There are many good brothers and sisters in Christ who, who think the chief evidence of the Spirit's power and His presence is something almost wild happening. But there's great folly in that, not only theologically and biblically, but you can see the point here. Perhaps the greatest evidence that the Spirit of God is among His people is that their mouths are under control. What is the greatest evidence that Christ rules a family and a marriage? Tongues under control. <laughs> you see that? Let's ask the Spirit of God to tame the untamable in us, to control the uncontrollable, to, to grab our tongues and use them for the purposes for which they were created in the first place. And when we do, the reality and the glory and the power of the gospel will be communicated in ways we could not even dream of. It will not be in the spectacular. It will be in the ordinary. A controlled tongue.
that sings his praises, that lifts up, that builds, that creates, that doesn't tear down, that helps, that assists, that guides, that seeks to bring glory to the one who gave us the tongue in the first place. That's where the Spirit is. So may we pass this test. Let us be more like our Father. Let us resurrect a controlled tongue as the chief Christian virtue. Let us repent of our sins and call down the power of the Spirit to help our tongue serve King Jesus. Let's do that together. Would you pray with me?